I will see your 10 and raise you 20. Data, have you got a flush or a full house? It will cost you 20 to make that determination, sir. Dealer faults. You two have successfully divided the evening between you. I suspect conspiracy. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton bubbling up from my Armus pool of black slime. <laughs> there was the character I wanted to see in Picard. Oh well. Why was he oh, well. not, you know, kind of the hand face that we had in uh, season three as a man antagonist, right? It probably would have made close to about as much sense. <laughs> sure. sure. And then at the very end, Captain Picard is on Armus Planet and he says, you're not his mother. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> so we're here this week to talk about the three eras of TNG, which seems fitting as we had the return of the TNG crew and we pretty much have ended the third era of the TNG crew. So we can now reflect on the journey our favorite characters have been on. Yeah, I mean, we did, you know, the three eras of Picard, the character, you know, Jean-Luc, but this is really kind of the three eras of the next generation, and we'll concentrate on kind of the supporting cast. And by supporting cast, we're talking about the folks that uh, we, we always associate with the next generation. Um, but there's stuff from characters to how storytelling has evolved as well. And I, I think it's been interesting to kind of track everything from the next generation TV series to the film franchise to this revival series that we get with uh, Star Trek Picard, especially coming off the momentum of the uh, series finale that's got um, like a lot of like I, I saw like a lot of fans are like really into this. And yep. uh, you and I, I, I listeners, or if you're if you're still back with us, I think, you know, that Cam and I weren't so hot on it. But um, yeah, I think this should be a fun episode. Yeah, I like the last 20 minutes of the uh of the finale, but uh, Tyler, I believe you revisited it. Am I correct? Yes. So I actually went back and I revisited the last, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of the uh, previous episode, episode nine, Vox. And I watched that back to back with the finale as a whole. And this is going to like, this is going to sound like kind of a, a condescending thing, but I don't mean it. I just, I, I mean it in the most earnest way possible, but I just went into it like with my mind open and I kind of turned my brain off here in which I wasn't constantly thinking about the story threads that they had been building up or what the plot mechanics were scene to scene. I just wanted to sit there and go with what was happening on screen as if I'd never seen anything before and let the emotions unfold. I will say this, Cam. I was much happier with this Second viewing. I guess this is actually the third time that I watched the uh, the Vox scenes in which we return to the Enterprise D. But just right. watching this back to back um, over the course of I don't know. I guess like uh, 
what uh, 75 minutes or so um i liked it 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 didn't it didn't anger me it didn't stress me out the way it did upon our last podcast episode in which you and i were giving a lot of thought to whether a lot of these moments felt earned whether they made sense from a storytelling perspective i just i got swept up with the emotion and i think just kind of turning my brain off just a little bit it, it helped me I, I i'll say that i did not hate it um and i agree with you uh even last week i did enjoy like the last 20 minutes checking in with our characters without the pew 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 that we had relied on so much throughout the season well it's like star trek discovery alex kurtzman often described it as a bullet uh it felt like a very slow-moving bullet in season four, but uh, nonetheless, it was a bullet. <laughs> it, was a, it was a musket blast. <laughs> or like the Matrix, where you're like slowly yes. watching it go it's alongside your head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, the idea basically being it's action, things are happening, and you are flying through it. And I feel like that's kind of the general um, approach to Star Trek he seems to be taking, and the whole idea was that Picard was going to be the philosophical show, the contemplative show. The show would spend time dealing with ideas and character growth. But I think at the end of the day, it really was the Discovery bullet model, especially like seasons two and three, where it was just like things are happening and you are flying through it. And it's when you sit there and pick apart, you know, the plot mechanics or character moments or whatever that you start to go like wait what i don't i don't know but i can understand anyone who's like watching it is just like kind of like a fast-paced zippy ride through the uh, tng universe would be like yeah that was fun do you remember um you and i we, we would go to the movies with uh my ex and we'd hmm. walk out and you and i would talk about the movie for like the next 10 or 15 minutes and she was always delighted in this. She said she wanted to grab her iPhone one of these days and then just start recording us talk about it because I think you and I kind of approach things a little bit like differently in terms of reviewing. Like we want to kind of delve into what this means or what it means from kind of a cinematic perspective, uh, whether the storytelling kind of subverts our expectations. Um, you know, and I, I just want to general, like, honestly, I get it. General audiences probably don't do that. And I, I'm somebody, I'm willing to change my mind I kind of like, I understand why people like the finale. Kim, I don't know if you're, you, you maybe saw it on Letterboxd, but uh, I rewatched Hereditary um, uh, just last night. Right. Okay. No, I didn't see that. You recall when you and I walked out of that movie five years ago. <laughs> I think I carried you out, didn't I? <laughs> Kim, I, I was miserable. I found that, I found it to be grueling. I yeah. was just like, I, I, but I didn't say it was a bad movie. I just said to you, like, like I can appreciate it on its te technical aspects, what it's doing, like story-wise, but I just found it like, like so grueling to sit through. And um, I've come around on the movie. I, I, I legit liked it. I'm willing to change my mind, and, and I maybe one of these days I can, I can come around and, and recognize the genius that is uh, the writing of season two of Picard in which, <laughs> you know, Rios is kidnapped by ice. <laughs> He he uh, gets like a tricorder blast out of the bus and never speaks of ice again. But guess what? He loves being in the 21st century because he has a matchbook and he could light off matches in the 21st century. Maybe I'll come around and recognize that genius. I like that you were saying earlier you weren't going to be condescending. <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but Cam, Cam, like I under, like I legit understand why people liked um, season three of Picard. And there's a lot that I liked yeah. about it. You and I, th there's so many moments you and I really appreciated. If you enjoyed season two of Star Trek Picard, you are deranged. I'm sorry to say it. Like I, 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 like you are legit deranged, and you don't know what basic storytelling is. Like that, it was one of the worst seasons of television I've ever witnessed, and it is far and away the worst season of Star Trek in existence. Like I have no problem saying that to our listeners. I'll even give them uh, season one, which took us a while. Like it was the finale where it really the bottom just dropped out. But I can understand people who felt the journey was intriguing. I mean, you and I were hanging on. Um, mm -hmm. like, it, like I went back and I re-listened to our podcasts, uh, you know, about a year ago when we did like our season one rewatch and you and I were, you know, episode to episode, we we're like, okay, okay. I, I wonder where this is going. Like, oh, okay. Uh, that's intriguing. But by the time we got to the finale of season one, we're like, oh yeah. Like it just all adds up to nothing. Despite the fact that I thought the, uh, the data death scene, um, I thought was done, you know, quite well. I, I did appreciate it. Although... I was thinking about today when I was making notes for this episode. Um, Data as we knew him, his positronic neurons were okay with death after he'd been activated and his memory had been running for, what, the equivalent of, like, 40 years, you know? Because, like, his memory would have stopped after Nemesis. Yeah. And so that's, like, 20 years of nothing. And so I think it's just, like... like Data had essentially been in existence for 40 years, but he's like, yeah, I'm ready to die. I was like, <laughs> just when I was thinking about that, I was like, huh, okay. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful moment, but it kind of, eh, I don't know if that quite tracks. For a show built around a hundred year old man, uh, I think they were pretty ageist because they also had, as you mentioned, Rafi saying the uh, Enterprise D was ancient. <laughs> <laughs> that still makes me mad. I mean, in, like technically Enterprise D is like older than both of us, but... I would not consider either of us to be ancient. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The Enterprise D is younger than us, rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd like to think we're not ancient, but, I mean, I think that's something ancient people would say. <laughs> Very true, yeah. Um, I Like, I'm an old millennial, but you're kind of on the cusp between, like, Gen X and millennial. Mm -hmm. Like, what would you consider yourself to be? I tend to think millennial. Yeah. Um, you wish. Because <laughs> I tend to find, like, when you talk about Gen X, they don't have a lot of familiarity with like growing up with like say the internet or computers and i do more so so that's kind of where i look at it but you were what of like 12 13 when you got the internet yeah yeah okay. that's right yeah i was like seven eight myself yeah yeah like so you really like grew up more so but i just i have friends that are gen xers and like that kind of world of technology is so far beyond them like they're just like i don't know i don't get that stuff i remember when we first got the internet my dad was going through like how the bill would work and we were on like this tiered system. And if the entire Orton family and there's like six of us in this family, but I think only four of us at the time would be capable of using the internet. If we went above 28 hours a month, the bill hmm. would go up like by a hundred yeah. bucks. And when my dad said that we all looked at each other and like giggled, like as if we had used the internet for more than 28 hours <laughs> a month between the four of us. Um, Cam, I, I use the internet about 28 hours a day. Yeah. Might not seem physically possible, but believe me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, depending on where you look, I'm either a millennial or a Gen X. I tend to just as associate myself a little more with millennials. Okay. And so uh, let's get into the talk about boomers here. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> space crew. boomers. Space boomers. Yeah. Isn't that what um they called uh uh Merryweather in uh or Mayweather in uh next uh or not next gen uh in Enterprise NX01? That is correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Space boomers. So um yeah, okay. Maybe maybe kind of tackle like TNG. Like storytelling. Like it was episodic in nature at the time. You know, there are some mm-hmm. ongoing threads, you know, maybe kind of the Klingon politics and, and the Duras family, um, maybe a little bit of Romulan subterfuge and, and, and Sela. Borg. Um, I think the Borg, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it wasn't like it was serialized in the way you'd see at the time, you know, kind of the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Maybe you had some L.A. Law or Beverly Hills 90210 where there are, you know, some ongoing recurring characters week to week, that sort of stuff. Um, I, I think it's more like DS9 kind of, took that mantle up yeah it's more like the soaps like things like as you said 90210 or before that like yeah. dallas those are the shows that typically people looked at and were like that should be serialized you know but like even like i, I think what matt Locke even had like maybe some recurring characters that would pop up uh once or twice a season we got that kind of in next generation as well you know maybe q or barkley would pop up you know once or twice um mm-hmm. so you know like um so that's kind of the, the basic story still storytelling structure of you know the tng era and then then you get into the film era and so this is how we're kind of dividing kind of these different uh generations of the next generation um cam you've got two hours to work with um they need to be kind of a little bit more action oriented than you would have on uh the more uh, didactic sort of television series that we were getting for seven years. Yep. And those films, they're focused on Picard and Data, and everyone is just in their orbit. So the other main characters that we really delighted in. And, and I think kind of to the detriment, but like, Cam, it's tough to do like a seven-person ensemble and, and do it justice. There weren't a lot of ensemble episodes of The Next Gen, because you and I, we did our research we were looking for like what is the best ensemble episode of Next Generation. Yeah, you and I came up blank, so we ended up doing an episode on uh, on uh, Elementary Dear Data instead. Right. So, um, oh yeah, no, ship in a bottle. Ship in a bottle. Oh no, no. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I rewatched Elementary Dear Data, and then right. our episode was focused on ship in a bottle. You are correct, sir. And then the revival series, Star Trek Picard, in which the people behind the scenes tell me the worst thing. I think is possible in which they're announcing we're making a 10 hour movie. And that's what all the folks making streaming shows nowadays say when they clearly haven't watched the best of TV that's on right now. And by that, I mean, it's folks being able to balance kind of um, week to week adventures with ongoing arcs. You know, like when I hear 10 hour movie, I'm like, Oh, everything is kind of like a blob of, story i do think they did better in season three of picard though mm-hmm. um it was much easier for me to, to to delineate what was going on episode to episode week to week and kind of like have those hived off in my brain than with season two of picard where that just seems like after you know episode three to episode 10 of season two I'm just like, I don't know. It's just like a big jumble in my head. I don't, I, I can't really figure out what was episode to episode other than, you know, Picard and Guinan are being interrogated by an FBI agent, or we have to watch the very horrific, like, suicide of Picard's mother, you know, that, that sort of stuff. But otherwise, that happened twice. Ugh. 
what a terrible, terrible like season of television. So yeah, I think storytelling. Like, do you think that's kind of a fair way to delineate the difference in storytelling between those three generations of Next Generation? I think so. Yeah, and they pretty much sum up the eras in which they're airing as well. Mm-hmm. To me, the whole like ten-hour movie thing. I hear of this, uh, people speak of this as a thing, but boy, have I never seen an example that worked for me. <laughs> and it's like, okay, is it me? Is it the shows I'm watching? I'm going to lean towards it's the shows I'm watching. But it seems to me like an incredibly insecure approach to storytelling. Like it's, they are so terrified of not maintaining viewers week to week that they're like, no, no, you have to watch the whole thing to understand it. We are not going to give you a satisfying story because then you might not watch next week. So we have to end on a cliffhanger. I I, I don't know. To me, it just feels kind of cheap and like the sort of thing you would rely on when you have a very vast entertainment landscape where people have a billion options. I will say this, and I've said it on the podcast before. There's really only one series I've ever witnessed that has done this successfully. And the creators of The Wire, they always said, you know what, like every episode is just a chapter in a book. They never said, you know, we're making a mm. uh, a 12 or 13 hour movie. You know, those are the episode lengths any given season. They always said like each episode is a chapter in a book. And it is like with The Wire, I have a tough time delineating, you know, maybe what specific plot point took place in this episode versus that episode. What happened though is The Wire was so critically acclaimed and it was such a favorite among television creators that they're like, let's see if I can rip that model off. And everybody has failed miserably, except for David Simon, the uh, creator of The Wire, who's gone on to do other like miniseries and what she kind of repeats the same model. I like this guy has ma- David Simon has mastered this model. I really haven't seen anybody come close. Maybe Game of Thrones, but guess what? That's been adapted <laughs> from literal novels. Yeah in which there are chapters. Sure. So, you know, I just, I think this is a losing battle whenever I hear people do this. And I also just think like, oh, you don't understand like what modern, like what the strength of this medium is nowadays, you know? And I I, I just see so many like greater shows. Cam, you're, you're, you're about to pump in your um, Better Call Saul, like Blu-rays, uh, the final season. Already started. Already started. Oh, which episode are you on right yeah. now? I just uh, finished episode two the other night. Okay, excellent. I, I, and this is for the final season. But it's not like you watch Better Call Saul and it's like every episode, it like it kind of holds up on its own. You know, like mm-hmm. may, there, there's definitely ongoing threads, but it holds up on its own. It's not as if you're watching Better Call Saul and you're wondering by the, edi- like the end of it. It's like, I wonder why Chuck is staring at a red door or, you know, why is Kim Wexler like ripping her hand off and like talking to it? You know, yeah. it, it, it just like kind of that frustrating stuff. Um, How do you think about maybe the model uh, of The Watchmen? Uh, Damon Lindelof adapted that or didn't adapt, but he kind of made like a uh, a sequel television series. Remix? To Remix, the, um, he, he that's how he it? kind of uh, uh, described it, you know, leading yeah. up to it. And, and but it was kind of a sequel to like kind of the, uh, the revered, uh, you know, graphic novel and kind of taking place maybe 30 years afterwards. Um, but again, it, it was kind of like, <laughs> it was one long story, but don't you think like that was kind of the way to do it in, in which you have very clear things happening episode to episode. You, you don't get the episodes mixed up in your head. 
Yes, and I would say for whether it was Watchmen or, you know, you're saying Better Call Saul or various others, like there's a sense of satisfaction when the episode's over. Yes, you want to watch the next one, but you still really were gripped by the hour you watched, whereas I find kind of the the more like um, (laughs) over-the-counter versions of this are just kind of like empty, and it's more about we just kind of hit you with a bunch of stuff and you have to watch because there's a cliffhanger. So, like, I I wondered this when we're doing our season two rewatch of Picard, like, whether or not, like, binge watching it would be easier on my brain because I wouldn't have to wait week to week. Um, I'm sorry to say it still remains like the worst season of Star Trek ever created. Like, I don't think binge watching helps, but I would definitely say that binge watching helped me with season one of Picard in which they would rely Mm -hmm. on that same sort of gimmick as well. Yeah, no, I agree with that, yeah. So, Kim, do we want to kind of delve into kind of what the characters were up to or how the characters were approached? You know, minus Jean-Luc, we've, we've already covered that. Uh, maybe, yeah, I, I, I no doubt you'll link to that episode in our show notes. Mm-hmm. But um, why don't we start with Riker? You know, like, I, I think he was introduced in season one as kind of the Kirk of the next generation. But it was interesting. But hornier. <laughs> Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, certainly in season one and two. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. With, with those holo- holographic porn that he was watching in his <laughs> in his quarters, which is weird. What were they like? Were they like walking to his quarters and he's like watching like the the one where it's like the Little Women or something like that, the miniature women? And it's like, what is going on? I th- th- come on. Let's be honest. That that's a total Gene Roddenberry sort of thing that he would have inserted at the time. It is. I don't. I wouldn't have used the word inserted, but yes. Well, okay. Well, you know what? I mean. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well, it's interesting. Okay. So, like, Gene Roddenberry, I think, like, from what my understanding is, like, it was kind of Gene Roddenberry and DC Fontana kind of running things for the most part in season one. Then mm-hmm. Maurice Hurley in season two. Then it was Michael Piller from seasons three through six. And then Jerry Taylor in season seven. Is that kind of how you're brain works when encapsulating like who's kind of running the creative side of things for those seven seasons yeah and i actually think that's a really interesting thing to underline when you compare that to star trek picard which switched showrunners every season Mm -hmm. and felt like it was (laughs) drastically changing season to season like rebooting itself retconning what had happened the previous season and with tng i would actually say it is pretty distinct when you're jumping from seasons one and two into three and onwards um but I would say it's pretty consistent from three to through seven. The quality dips a little bit in seven, but I would say the show, in terms of the hour of television you're watching, is pretty consistent. And it's not just the uniform switch. Like there's a genuine different feel to the first two seasons. Yeah. It, it, it's almost like even the cinematography was a little different as well. Yeah. Like it felt mm, like more of a previous TV era where it was when you got to the yeah. 90s, it felt like they were updating what they could do visually like i wouldn't necessarily hold tng up as like the bastion of the advancement of the television medium but it actually matches pretty darn well with the star trek shows that would come later like voyager and ds9 um it's like they had a visual template they figured out that looked impressive enough and they kept consistent with that it is interesting like you would not believe it, but, you know, people kind of regard, like, you know, season three onwards is when they really find their groove. But 
it is still interesting to think that like you know the first half of season three it this is all made in like the 80s yeah as well yeah and the fact that they have kind of this visual style that is still resonant and it doesn't look super dated i mean you can tell it's like a tv series but um especially when you're looking at those blu-rays and looking at the hd transfers i'd say for the 1980s uh, in an era not known for great cinematography or film stock um yeah film stock in particular yeah yeah tng looked pretty good from season three onwards it did i mean you i would look at an episode like q who um from season two of tng and say that one looks pretty good like it looks mm -hmm. like they're kind of yeah. evolving towards where they're gonna go but by and large when you see there's a lot of like flat lighting in the first two seasons which makes the spandex uniforms look that much worse like there's i wouldn't say it's ever a cheap looking show in season one and two but it gives itself a little bit of a cheap feel just because of the lighting and just kind of the blocking and how it just feels a little bit creaky also the the hairstyles very 80s that, that doesn't uh. help either um you want to generally they say with sci-fi stick to something that's a little timeless like you can't predict timeless but you can predict that this is very 1980s <laughs> <laughs> i'm just i i i hats off to the shows that were running the star trek shows that were running in the 90s and early 2000s like you look at the hairstyles i don't have any problems with them yeah like they don't look dated which is pretty good or the 60s uh kirk's hairstyle yeah. looks great kirk or kirk cam <laughs> <laughs> you wish you were kirk oh um I, I like when I watch Mad Men, I'm just so overtaken by how stylish everyone still looks in that show. And, and from the uh, uh, clothing that they're wearing to the haircuts that they've got, it, it's like, like, but like, um, <laughs> spoiler alert for a show that ended almost a decade ago. Um, at, at one point, they do shift into the 1970s, <laughs> and it's notable how worse everybody looks, <laughs> and <laughs> in which their ties get really fat, yeah. people are wearing like these bushy mustaches and tie-dye shirts. It's just interesting like how wonderful the 60s looked. Um, not, 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 I'm not saying the 60s were wonderful for people that were, say, uh, minorities or LGBTQ. I'm just saying everybody dressed quite well. Yeah, outside of the odd uh, high-waisted pants, yeah, everything looks pretty great. But uh, we... I, I, I like my high-waisted pants, so uh, <laughs> whatever, dude. But we were talking about Riker. So, like, yeah. over the course of the TV show, do you see a lot of growth in him? Yes, I do. And he starts as Horny Kirk, <laughs> but he kind of became, and I keep thinking about this, like, chain of command. And by then, he's kind of the stuffy leader mm -hmm. who'd only kind of loosen up on the trombone or when he was on Ryza, maybe also using the trombone there. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and, and not just that, but even an episode like Second Chances in which you see Thomas Riker, who is kind of more like loose versus like stuffy, like Will Riker, you know? And I just see, I want to go back to an episode like Pegasus in which he has so much more consternation about what he was complicit in with uh, Admiral Pressman and the cloaking ship that they were involved with you know like there like it, it's hilarious to see how he kind of gets stuffier over the years but jonathan frakes has just this such charisma about him yep that it, it doesn't really matter like he's still like this like really really engaging character and like despite the okay 
he was number two on the call sheet. It's Patrick Stewart, then him. And then if you look at the credits, it, it says it says starring Patrick Stewart, Jonathan Frakes, and then it says also starring, and then they list everybody else in alph- alphabetical order. Right. Um, that's no shock. Like, I, if you wanted to count the number of lines given or the number of minutes on screen, Frakes had it uh, the most after Patrick Stewart. He really was number two on the call sheet. And I don't know, like, I I, I, I think he deserves kind of all the recognition that he gets. But yes, I, I, your original question, yes, I, I do feel like there was a bit of a, a journey or kind of a, a growth in the character that we saw. I wonder how much of the maturation of that character came from like best of both worlds where it's like a kind of like a young man. We see him working with Picard through the first couple seasons, but there's also a lot of that kind of weird holodeck stuff and everything. But Mm -hmm. when you get to like best of both worlds and Shelby is kind of goading him about not moving up and he still sticks around for the next few seasons, he kind of like grows into an adult character where yes, he likes to go to rise and have fun. But then I think of like, you know, the way he re- deals with, like, uh, Ensign Rowe, where suddenly he's, like, much more authoritative in his treatment of her. But also, you know, you think of uh, the episode Lower Decks, where, like, the young cadets are, like, really, like, kind of nervous around him because he's kind of, like, grown into, like, an adult character. Whereas when you see him in, like, episode one, he's kind of still, like, a bit of a party animal love struck kind of guy he's kind of like mooning over deanna very similar to the way like decker is with Ilya um in the motion picture it just feels like a character who's he's not a kid in seasons one and two but he feels like someone who's still fairly youthful well we also did the math and we realized that like Riker graduated the academy and then within seven years he was first officer aboard the flagship yeah. of the Federation as well. And so I think, like, Riker's character was actually younger. Like, like Frakes was playing younger. I think Frakes started the show when he was, like, in his mid to late 30s. I think the character was, like, what, like, maybe, like, not even 30 when he started? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. So I just wonder if that's just kind of, like, a natural maturation that happens when, you know, you're, you're getting out of your 20s and then getting into your, like, you know, mid thirties by the time that we get to the end of the series. But it's an arc that like is very subtle. It's not the yes, sort of thing. Like, yes, it is. There's not an episode about Riker recognizing that he's aging. Um. Yeah. Uh, yes, there is. Future imperfect, in which they oh. literally give him gray hair. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And, and a, he's married to Minuet. And a creepy son. <laughs> yes. Um. No, but okay. So, what is the least subtle like? Uh, character arc among the main characters in all of star trek in all of star trek oh wow all of star trek the least subtle. i think there's one answer but I, I'll, I'll i'll save it oh and now i'm like racking my brain the least subtle character arc um god do you want to give me like a a hint as to what you're thinking uh, why don't i just share it okay um i i really liked michael burnham in season one. Oh, okay in which she was kind of this like aloof character. She was raised by Vulcans. Hmm. And then by the time we get to season two, she's bawling in every single episode. Right. And I'm like, who is this character? Like, it, like, like it actually like just bears zero resemblance to whoever we met in season one. And, um, but if we take her out of the equation, I maybe like, 
I don't know if least subtle is the best description, but I, I think Julian Bashir had the most pronounced arc from where we met him in episode one and where we left him in, you know, episode 176. Yeah, or I would even say like the doctors, I wouldn't call it subtle because they really underline every sort of moment towards where he uh, winds up in season seven of Voyager. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that like a lot of characters, whether it's the doctor or even seven of nine on Voyager, the episodes are built around these like growths in their character. Whereas I would say like Riker, a lot of it just kind of happens almost, you kind of don't notice it. It's just kind of happening, happening subtly throughout the course of the show. But you figure it's kind of maybe best of both worlds might be kind of, one of the most important delineation points. Yes. I think that's the first time where you have, in the case of Shelby, like a character kind of like interrogating the character of Riker. Whereas I feel like in the first two seasons, he is very much that like Kirk type. And even to a certain degree through season three. Okay. Well, look, Kim, I, I want to save data for last because I think that's maybe what a lot of folks are itching for. So you'll have to listen to the rest of the episode there. Uh, why don't we jump over to uh, Dr. Beverly Crusher? Mm. Um. It, it's very strange in which like she's likable in season one yep. you know she's got the very 80s look of course she's got the kind of a a curious son who you know the, the captain tells <laughs> to shut up you know um and then she disappears in season two and like i wasn't watching it live at the time i just wonder what like how did audiences react and you have this very likable character and then she's gone quite out of the blue and we, we have Pulaski come in. I think Pulaski gets a bad rap, but I understand why some folks didn't quite like her when like she's introduced by like ridiculing the fan favorite character data. Yeah. And it's also the issue that like they were trying to create bones, but when bones like barks at uh, Spock, Spock gives it back. Data just looks confused or quizzical. And so it's kind of like kicking a puppy to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah, it, it didn't quite work. So Beverly comes back. She's done running Starfleet Medical until, you know, the revival series in the final episode. We find out she's back at, you know, running Starfleet Medical, but this time as an admiral rather than as a commander. And uh, I think it might have just been like uh, almost kind of a comfort blanket for audiences at that time. Like, at least it was for me doing like kind of a rewatch. It's like, oh, yes, you know, like, but I'm trying to think like where her character arc was. Like, how did she change significantly from, you know, like episode one through the finale? Ugh. Ugh. Like, there's like key moments, you know. Like, I think of the setting up of her and Picard's past relationship in the um, in the pilot, and then you get like an episode like attached in season seven, which sort of acknowledges this sort of continuation of their sort of feelings towards each other mm -hmm. i feel yeah. like a lot of the beverly story and there's like good beverly stories that are like kind of like standalone things that don't really affect in terms of like a character arc but i feel like a lot of her like, story is tied to um yes sub rose is what you were thinking of there yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um but like i feel like a lot of her sort of story throughout the course of at least the first while is tied to what is going on with Wesley. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, here's the deal. She's perhaps the most utilitarian character yeah. in the show other than Worf. And like his utilitarian duty is to fire torpedoes 
and no no not to fire up. them to ask if he can fire them and be told no <laughs> <laughs> yes yes but those are probably the most like the two most utilitarian roles you know you might argue Jordy, but i don't think we saw Jordy as much as we did beverly or data or um wharf you know i think you could argue data uh but like i never understood what an operations officer actually did right i never i was like it's just he's more kind of like the um comms slash science slash sensors kind of guy exposition guy a lot of the time yeah yeah so like i I, like i would argue like she's very utilitarian but like what was her arc throughout the show and and so cam let's bring her into the movie era what was the most memorable thing she ever did in the movies um okay she gets pushed off a boat in generations that's pretty memorable in yeah. first contact, she distracts the Borg with uh, the Doctor program, so that pretty much mm-hmm. sums up her contributions there. That's in my notes. And yes. then in the third one, she's like wielding a phaser rifle a lot when they are, um, you know, escorting the Baku. But other than that, I don't really remember. Oh, oh, oh! There's the famous conversation with Troy about the firming. Mm-hmm. Of... <laughs> yes. Um, yep. Yep, yeah. And Nemesis, it's kind of I'm blanking on that one. I I'm blanking on Nemesis. In all fairness, I've watched Nemesis three times, whereas I've seen, you know, First Contact probably like twenty times. I've seen Next or Generations and Insurrection at least six times. Yeah. I so anyways, the moment for me in which she had the most agency in the entire film franchise was when she asked the EMH to create a distraction. Mm. Otherwise, like she just didn't have any agency in the films. No, and we didn't mention Riker in the movies, but like Riker very much takes a back seat when you get to the films, but at least they're giving him like B stories, whether it is, you know, the James Cromwell story in First Contact or the Briar Patch stuff in um in Insurrection or dealing He gets a joystick. He gets a joystick. Um or um, you know, dealing with the Viceroy character in nemesis it's not you know it's not headlining stuff but it's prominent and you do remember it whereas it's utilitarian as it well. is yeah but whereas like beverly it often felt like they were like how do we get this character into this movie whereas they knew all along they'd be using riker in the movie yeah yeah so that's why i i can't it, despite some of my reservations about you know commando crusher early on in uh, Star Trek Picard, you know, um, I do feel that her development tracked, you know, she was front and center throughout this entire season. I think they did right by her in this revival series. Like she has an emotional journey dealing with both her son, uh, with her former lover uh, coming to reconcile, maybe some mistakes she made by cutting out um, some of her closest friends, <laughs> despite yeah. the fact she has the most forgiving friends in the world, you know, don't know if she learned her lesson right there. Um, I really think that Crusher, I, I, I was so very happy with what they did with Crusher throughout season three of Picard. Yeah, well, it felt like it was the first time they actually put her in the spotlight. And there's a lot of really good moments of Crusher throughout the run of TNG. It's just that it's not a character they ever seemed interested in really exploring to the degree they did say like data or Worf with his honor and the Klingon stories. You never really got that with Crusher. It felt like with the season three of Picard, that was the first time where writers were like, what about Crusher? What's she been up to? Let's actually build 
somewhat the season around her character. That's never something that would have happened in any of those movies, for example. Was she in all 10 episodes? Um, At least nine, right? Yeah. Was she in the first episode? She was. They uh, put, like, it was the first scene of uh, episode one, I think, uh, in which they're chasing after, in which Vatic's ship was chasing after the uh, Elios. If she's not in an episode, it's only because they just, like, remember there was that episode where, like, Raffi and Worf disappeared for an episode without any acknowledgement? It would be, like, that sort of episode, and I don't remember what that would be. Yeah. Um. Okay, well, what about Riker's journey in Star Trek Picard? You know, like, I like Nepenthe, the episode. Um, I could understand, like, Riker and Troy's journey tracked for me despite the incredibly depressing circumstances involving the death of their very very young son because uh, positronic studies weren't allowed <laughs> anymore i don't know um i thought that episode was great but like Riker, I, I was just very mixed on what he was up to in season three and like he seemed out of character but they also tried to explain why he was out of character at times and like he was still like he still hadn't really dealt with the death of his son and I'm like, okay, like they're, they're explaining why he's snapping at Picard, telling him, get off my bridge, you've doomed us all, which seems like such an, like a non-Riker thing to say. Yeah. But the thing is, I, I, I don't know if I can totally reconcile like that with the character, you know, everything what we know of him, you know, and, and so it didn't quite work for me. Um, I, I think once he and Deanna met up again, um, I liked him being like kind of the same old Riker. Um, but that moment in which he and Diana met up, I thought it was kind of cringe, you yeah. know, and like, they're like, we don't like space hippies. You know, our house was designed by space hippies. They <laughs> suck. Why are we living on this crappy planet? And, and like, they're literally like saying, like literally saying what their issues were. And it, it seemed like way too literal for me and like a, a very easy therapy session maybe that's just because you know deanna's a counselor possibly one thing i think that's really interesting about Riker is the way that he was envisioned as like kind of a, a young kirk um variation and yet he aged past kirk kirk was second star to the right and straight on till morning you never got the sense of a kirk who really really embraced adulthood whereas Riker did Riker settled yeah. down with Troy. He had kids. He went through an unbelievable tragedy and, you know, con continued to work past it, but also, like, acknowledging his feelings and what it had done to him. In many ways, like, Riker became the most, like, multidimensional adult character that I can really think of in Star Trek. I'm, I'm well, maybe, maybe Ben, Cisco. <sighs> Yeah, but the thing with, like, Cisco, I, I agree, he's a very, like, adult character, but his journey is also considerably shorter than Riker's, whereas, like, Riker, mm -hmm. you see, like, a young man growing into basically sure. your dad by the time you get to Picard yeah. Season 3. That is not something William Shatner was ever doing as Kirk. Yeah. Could you ever imagine um, a revival series in, in which uh, Kirk tells Spock to get off the bridge you've doomed us all <laughs> well like think about kirk you know sees the death of his son and we get that great 
Shatner, you know, fall back moment. But he's mm-hmm. like kicking a Klingon in the face, being like, I have had enough of you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's like moments later. Like, you don't get that with this evolution of Riker. Like, it feels like a much more contemplative character and someone that is very much like carrying the mileage of his life in a way that like uh, Kirk fought against. I'll say um, it was delightful to see Jonathan Frakes at the beginning of season one. Uh, delightful just seeing Riker kind of get his groove back by the end of season one. Not that they gave him like tons of like deep material, but he was just there as like a reassuring presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the middle section of, of season three. I, did I keep saying season one? Uh, I think you're okay, but yes. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I... I'm so used to misspeaking anyways, but um, the middle section of season three is where I was just like, I don't know. They, they kind of seem to lose a thread on Riker just a little bit. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I felt the same way watching it. It never felt a hundred percent like Riker, but I guess I'm more appreciative of what they were trying with the character from where I sit now than I was in the week to week viewings of going like, this seems like Jonathan Frakes. This doesn't seem like Riker. Yeah. Um, Cam, Counselor Deanna Troy, they really had no grasp on this character early on <laughs> in uh, TNG. Yeah. Um, yeah, think about her powers of crying at <laughs> Farpoint Station, but she very much became kind of the emotional anchor of the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was, I, honestly, I think she was the one that you could trust more than anyone else. You know, you know, Picard, he had his principles, but he was very aloof. Like, why would anyone confide in him? Where I think you could trust Deanna. And, and audiences could trust Deanna in a way they couldn't in other characters, unless it was an episode like Man of the People or The Child. You know, very, very bad episodes. Sure. Um, the problem, though, is we were talking about how utilitarian uh, Dr. Crusher always was and continues to be. They just never found a utilitarian role for Troy throughout the run of the series. Uh, I mean, the Riker, the Rikers, the writers at one point, they. I think in season six or seven, they're like, I don't know, maybe she's in charge of like schooling on the Enterprise D. That lasted like one or two episodes, <laughs> you know? Um, so she would just often fade in the background, you know, during this generation of the next generation. And, um, but she was great in episodes that they would give her like face of the enemy or even second chances as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, because we're diving into her character more than her role aboard the Enterprise in, in those situations there. Cam, the movies did her no favors. Nope. Uh, she crashed the ship <laughs> in Generations. Um, she did have that awkward scene with Picard when he found out his family had been incinerated. Um, These things happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, she was drunk in First Contact. Uh, she was a damsel in distress in Nemesis, and she shaved Riker's beard in Insurrection. Yes, that pretty much sums it up. I think Deanna had a function, which is that like she was like the confidant who characters would talk to. So if you had a character who who you needed to verbalize what they were going through, they would have a scene with Deanna. And that with Picard, it was sometimes like Crusher would fulfill that role. Mm -hmm. But often Deanna would as well. Where Deanna really got hooped, unfortunately, was once they added Guinan, Suddenly they started giving a lot of those scenes to Guinan. So Deanna got even less to do. I'm sure Marina Sirtis, you know, knowing Marina Sirtis based on our 
convention experiences. I'm sure she was just delighted with that. Yeah, because it's like they never you uh, knew how to use her like empathy powers when they are dealing with aliens. It's a lot of like, I feel something unusual, Captain, or something's not quite right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, thanks, thanks. That's very helpful, very helpful. Um, so you want to use that counselor element of the character, but then they kept like introducing other characters who were basically counselors. Well, um, what did you think of her return in the revival series in seasons one and three? Uh, I really liked her role in uh, season one, Nepente. When yep. she had that scene, like, calling out Picard for his treatment of Soji, <laughs> I was like, this is the Deanna Troy that we were kind of robbed of. She had moments like this in TNG, but it wasn't consistent. And giving her a moment like this, you're like, this is how you write this character. That she's someone who is very compassionate and a great listener, but isn't afraid to give kind of tough advice to a character, especially when they're out of line. And I thought that was just a fantastic scene. And really built up my optimism big time for what they could do with her in season three. Uh-huh. And I don't know what was going on with season three, to be honest with you. Uh, we had some really weird, you know, scenes like her on the video screen where it seemed more like Marina Sirtis cutting up at a convention than Deanna Troy. I, bel I I'm a little confused about why she was in so little of it. I think Terry Metalis was saying on Twitter, well, because of her powers, they had to sideline her because she would be able to detect a changeling. Uh, but I'm like, it has to be more than that. Like, it just seems so weird to confine her to like those last three episodes. I, I have to believe there was maybe other issues, maybe with scheduling or something. COVID? It just seems weird. COVID, yeah. Like, it just seems weird that the character would be used so little in a reunion season. Look, they did right by Crusher, one yeah. of the other women that was sidelined much of the time on TNG, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't think they did right by Troy. And that that's quite no. unfortunate. And I mean, yeah, like you get a scene of her and Riker kind of, um, you know, settling their issues. But beyond that, what what did we get, Tyler? Um, I liked it when she had enough of data as her patient. And yeah. she started looking at like vacations, you know? Um... I, l I did like the moment where she could sense where Riker was in the Borg cube, and so she flew the ship and kind of redeemed herself after that Star Trek Generations crash landing. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, she was very forgiving of best friend Dr. Crusher after <laughs> being ghosted for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, don't know, man. It is... It <sighs> I'm very disappointed with where like it, it's so weird and like like isn't troy just such she is one of the most beloved characters in all of star trek but it's like if you press people like what were her greatest moments or what were her best episodes she did not get a lot of great episodes you know but i think she just had like this consistency like she like i said she was kind of this emotional anchor you know i think it, it's really kind of a testament to marina Sirtis being able to kind of rise above a lot of the material that she was given but I, I I don't know. Like I, I I was bummed out by what we got here in season three of the revival series. They should have done more. Like I just think yeah. like Nepente really promised a character who had an authority that just was never written into the show very much during TNG. 
that's the sort of thing you want to run with. And it's a bummer because if this was just a case where, ah, you know what, Marina Sirtis will be back on Star Trek in like a year or two. That's not the case, though. And as a final kind of send-off to that TNG crew, didn't work out so well with her. So you've got uh, one Jordy LaForge who's introduced with uh, Super Dave Osborne catchphrases in season one of uh, <laughs> The Next Generation. Um, I think they make a very smart move and move him into uh, main engineering in season two. Um, unfortunately, we don't see nearly as much of him. And when we do... Um, I mentioned last week, I, I kind of had the realization rewatching TNG as an adult, like, oh, Jordy's um, kind of ice cold and he's a bit of a jerk. And I love his relationship with Data as besties, but what a weird character. I like him in episodes where they pair him off with like Wesley and Barkley. I think that's like an interesting dynamic, having mm -hmm. those three work together. Um but, what about relics, where they pair him off with Scotty, oh, and he's just a complete a-hole the entire time. That is crushing. You know, yeah. I, I'm actually going to give a lot of points to relics, because you know, if they tried to write that show now, they would never <laughs> do that. No one would have the guts to have a character, <laughs> like, talk down to a beloved icon like that. Okay, could you imagine um, Miles O'Brien lands in the Discovery era and Stamets is talking to O'Brien like that now? Yeah, although as soon as I said that, I was like, well, I guess there was that Admiral like snapping at Picard in the like premiere of uh, Picard. <laughs> so I guess it does happen. The sheer effing but... hubris. But then he... Picard was being like rather blustery and uh, full of yeah. himself, whereas like Scotty is just being completely lovable. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, this poor, poor man. Um, yeah. yeah, like we did an episode, The Psychology of Jordy LaForge. I'll post a link to in the show notes. But he's just like such a fascinating character where like, I think we talked in that episode about how like, it's almost like, you know, he has this visor. So he's almost like separated from humanity by seeing and kind of experiencing the world through his, through technology, which mm -hmm. kind of ties to his great love of, you know, the the warp drive and just technology and how he interacts with people is often very like mechanical and he's very aloof. I would you say that Jordy has an arc over the course of TNG? No, I would not. Um, yeah. I also want to point out, this is a man who sleeps in his uniform. There were two <laughs> episodes in which he woke up and he was in his uniform. Yeah. They did not even give him pajamas. Like, this is a weird dude, at least during the TNG era, and I, I, I can't figure out what his arc would be, at all. Like, like the character that he's playing in parts of season one just seems totally different yeah. than who he was from seasons two onward, in what she is now, chief engineer. I think it was the best thing they ever did for him, but it also meant that we saw him less. Um, you know, it's like he had his good standout episodes like the enemy or um identity crisis is kind of a weird episode but it's kind of a fun Jordy episode whereas something like um what was it called like interface was a pretty bad Jordy episode you know yeah um i like the next phase but it wasn't about Jordy's character really right and mine's eye is good but that's also him uh, like basically uh being controlled by someone else being brainwashed um yeah he doesn't have agency in that one uh there's booby trap that's a pretty good episode uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, with the whole <laughs> Leah Brahms was it good for you sort of stuff. 
Well, that's the next one. That's Galaxy's Child. Oh, Booby Trap right, is right. when it's the computer program he's working with. That one I think is pretty good. What would you say is the least weird Geordie romance episode? <laughs> Not Aquiel, that's for sure. Nope. Uh, okay, so there's Aquiel. There's yeah. uh, Galaxy's Child in which the married, at the time, Leah Brahms, found out that he had a holographic girlfriend version of her. Um, what were the other Geordie romances? There's the crew member he goes on the date with uh, to like the beach holodeck program as well. It's I like recall. 20 years younger than him. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 um, I guess Aquiel. <laughs> Ensign, Ensign Aquiel <laughs> with Commander Geordie LaForge. With um, the sex crystal thing. Yeah. The sex crystals. It was a different era. Um, yeah. Yeah. Riker would often say, like, yeah, I've got a date with like Lieutenant So and so. I'm just like, this is problematic. <laughs> this is problematic. You you're dating the people that report to you. Like, not cool, bro. Yeah, it's very nineteen nineties TV. Yeah. Um okay, the, the the movies. Um so he gets kidnapped in generations mm-hmm. and then he turns into a spy once again in generations inadvertently. Um he gets instead of a like a visor he now has like eyeballs that like like robotic eyeballs and he gets the uh, really funny uh joke about uh taking a leak and mm-hmm. um he does mention the statue of one yep. Zephyr Cochran. He goes on the flight, the warp flight. Yes, that was pretty cool. Yep. Um uh he did get his eyeballs back not only in uh all good things but in uh insurrection as well. I just I don't think they did enough with that. It was yeah. like, here's one moment, and then the rest of the time he's in engineering, and you can see his eyeballs, and that was that. Um, and then he seemed very nonplussed that um, Data died in Nemesis. You know? <laughs> the blank stare, yes. Yeah, so the movie is like, like, really didn't do much for me. So going into um, the revival series, I, I didn't really have high hopes for Jordy Florge. Um, Cam, LeVar Burton... <laughs> I I am uh, doing the um, Wayne Campbell move right now with a, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I I I so much praise to Lavar Burton right now um, for doing so much with that character, and I think they really did like a, a good effort in terms of writing good material for Jordy the father, Jordy the one who's conflicted about his job versus his crew that he's loyal to. You know, I I I. I Everything that we saw from Jordy tracked in season three versus Riker, it didn't quite track for me. Jordy delivered in a way I never would have anticipated or even asked for because I just did not have high hopes for what they would even do with Jordy because he just, he left me so cold in the film era that I really just didn't really expect much. And I really liked him as the father and also as the, um, you know, the curator of the Starfleet Museum. It just felt like they'd matured him up, but also kind of like made him normal. <laughs> because yeah. the whole thing was in this show, he's so freaking weird half the time. He's always <laughs> he doing and saying weird things or snapping at people or like they made him a very much like temperamental genius. And I like that he seemed like mellowed, but had that same like, like LeVar Burton is just one of those actors. I don't think he could play dumb if he tried. Like, there's mm-hmm. just an intelligence he has, even with a visor on where you can't see his eyes. It just shines through. And they really played with that. And I think just 
did the most they could to make him feel like a loving father. Like, Jordy had recognizable human emotions in that show. And it felt like an evolution. It didn't feel like just a kind of awkward rewrite of the character. It felt like it was earned. And then having him have, you know, emotional discussions with Data about what the loss of Data meant to him. It was just giving me moments that I just... You know, we I don't think we did an episode of what to expect from Picard season three. I think we were too busy covering one of the other shows on the air. But like I never would have brought up probably anything to do with Jordy because I never would have expected material this good. It was like they watched the reading Rainbow and they're like, We want that Jordy LaForge. You know? Yeah. And yeah. um did you ever see um NBC's The Weakest Link? You know, that game show back in the day? Maybe once or twice. You remember like you are the weakest link, goodbye. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had a uh, Star Trek episode, and uh, you know, spoiler alert: um, Levar Burton wins. Mm. And like you said, Cam, a moment ago, it's like he just he can't project anything else but just being an intelligent, you know, person and uh, and character. But like, it just he kind of had that gravitas even on like an NBC game show back in the day, and he eventually won. Um, Will Wheaton got in trouble in that episode with. Uh, Roxanne Dawson and it's like <laughs> he had said like some flirty remarks and she did not take kindly Ooh. to that at all it was it was awkward and I think at the time she was married to Casey Biggs uh, who played Damar of course yeah and I like I don't want to get it wrong but she said something along the lines like just you know wait until I tell my husband or something like that or like my husband will not appreciate this so I don't know. <laughs> that, that's my other memory from uh, the weakest link. I gotta find this on YouTube. This sounds incredible. It's on YouTube for sure, one hundred percent. I watched it live back in the day, but I also found it on YouTube again a couple of years ago. Oh wow, intense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Um, I don't. I love. I love the Jordy stuff. Like, Jordy's mm-hmm. had a journey. It wasn't an obvious journey, um, and it would not have been obvious if he had never appeared on the revival series. But um, thumbs up to Jordy, who, as a kid, I loved him. As an mm-hmm. adult, I was kind of like irked by him. Um, any listeners who think that we're being like too harsh on him, I, go back and rewatch like Jordy, like now. It's just yeah, he he tracks totally differently during the TNG era. Definitely, yeah, for sure. Um, Worf, uh, Kim, we we have like. More than just, I think, you know, like uh, three generations of Worf here, but I think we can combine, you know, uh, things here. Um, he starts off as um, a pretty big dum-dum yep. in, uh, <laughs> in The Next Generation. Um, we did not even know what his job was uh, for the first season. It was a loosely defined role, yes. Uh, honorary Klingon. <laughs> yeah, he's just kind of like if somebody was on an away mission, he would take over their console. He was basically what Jack Crusher appears to be in Star Trek Legacy. <laughs> yeah, the ship's counselor? Was that what he, he was like? Yeah, like something like that. Aid to the captain. She used the word counselor, though. Special counselor she did. To, to, the, yeah, yeah. to the captain. Sure, why not? Okay. Um, but he quickly became, became like a fan favorite. I think a lot of it has to do with just the charisma that is Dorn. Mm-hmm. Um. I think so much of like the mythology and people might be surprised so much of the mythology of the next generation, it really surrounds Worf to a degree that Mm -hmm. um, just, you didn't really see with the other characters, maybe data and all the soon business going on with lore, maybe, but 
you know, but if you go from stuff like Emissary all the way to Redemption, all the way to Rightful Heir, you know, like, um, it's, it's so much of all the Klingon mythology was tied to Worf and they liked having fun with the Klingon mythology and they liked having fun with Worf within this. And, and so they gave this guy who could be so one note, they gave him a lot to do throughout the next generation. And I, I mean, I, I, there's a reason why he's such a fan favorite that they wanted to bring him back on deep space nine. And, and of course, Michael Dorn's condition was like, yeah, okay, pay me the big bucks, but I'll come back if you give me like deeper material to do, if you make this a richer character and it really shows, I think they elevated that character so much on deep space nine. And it was kind of unfortunate, like during the film franchise era, like he didn't have a ton of great stuff to do other than assimilate this. And if you're any other man, I would kill you where you stand. Like those are two like pretty fun moments. I don't think you were, were you as much of a fan of assimilate this or did you think it was kind of cheesy? I thought it was cheesy. It felt yeah, like I liked it. <laughs> it just felt like so of that era where you had like these catch phrases in every action movie that came out. Um, Saddle up, lock and load. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like uh, I don't think the one assimilate this was a response to um, Independence Day, where Will Smith had a lot because it, it was released like four months later or five months later or whatever. But it just feels like so of that action era. Um, no, no, it was Jean, Jean-Luc Picard did have a line that was in reference to Independence Day. Do you, do you remember what it was in uh, uh, First Contact? In First Contact. No, what was it? Uh, the Randy Quaid homage. <laughs> I'm back. When he entered the, uh, the Borg alcoves to confront the Borg queen. Sure. I wonder how much of it is just like in relation to that whole era of entertainment is Arnold Schwarzenegger with his catchphrases and how popular they were. Yeah. But um. With Worf, it's interesting because I would say like Worf is in some ways quite underdeveloped on TNG, but I feel like that's more in a professional capacity maybe on the show. But they actually like do a lot with Klingon mythology and obviously his relationship with Gowron. And then also, you didn't mention it, Alexander. Yeah. They added that kid to TNG to give Worf more to do. And you got quite a few episodes about Worf dealing with a son and other characters didn't get that. I guess Deanna got the child in one episode. Um, and you had, obviously, Wesley Crusher and Beverly. But well, and, and Data like, and Lol in one episode as well. Yeah, that's one episode. But it feels like they were constantly trying to find ways to give Worf more to do. Maybe recognizing that his popularity was very high. But they couldn't necessarily use him in terms of his professional security officer role on the show as much as they would perhaps like to. Yeah, you know, like I said, he was introduced as kind of a dum-dum. Yeah, well, it's like there's that super clip on YouTube of just like Worf making suggestions and other characters <laughs> shooting him down. And that's something that when you start, you know, bringing him over to DS9 and introduce war elements, suddenly Worf is invaluable and you have all these different ways to use him in his relationship with the Klingons and all that sort of stuff. And, of course, the Jadzia relationship. It's like Worf just really blooms as a multi-dimensional fully fleshed out character on DS9 but it's like you could see they were almost like struggling with him in TNG and trying to find ways to make him more interesting and to make him more layered. What did you think of them putting him back in red on Deep Space Nine and giving him the job of strategic operations officer? I liked it. Um, I like that they were not just trying to kind of do a one-to-one like here's War from TNG here he is in DS9 playing the exact same role 
<laughs> same uniform. You know, it's the wharf you know. I like that they were trying to reinvent him a little bit. Yeah. Um, we get into Star Trek Picard. So, okay. Well, maybe briefly just touch on one point in Deep Space Nine in, in which, you know, there's that, I'm forgetting the name of the episode, but in which he and Jadzia go on a mission to, you know, retrieve like a Cardassian dissident and uh, Jadzia is injured. And so Picard saves her instead of the dissident. And Cisco's like, yeah, you're probably never going to get a command because of your decision. And we do jump over to, you know, Star Trek Picard. And, and maybe I, I think Picard or <laughs> Worf maybe redeemed himself enough throughout the Dominion War and his time uh, in the diplomatic corps serving on Kronos that maybe Starfleet would be able to give him a command. And it seems as if, you know, Worf gets command of the Enterprise E at a certain point. I think you and I kind of did some rough fan math head cannon in our heads yes head cannon in our, our heads I, I i i love being redundant <laughs> and figured that he's probably served as first officer aboard the enterprise e after data died and um we meet a chill wharf like a wharf that's uh been working on himself one who drinks chamomile tea and is there to get the more fiery raffi more in control of herself and to me this tracked i love this wharf i just wish like, they kind of gave him more to do than just hang out with Rafi, who is a character I just, I don't think ever worked. And, like, they, they like throughout season three of Picard, there, there's so many, like, fun Worf moments. But, like, mm -hmm. what is the best Worf episode? Like, I'm just kind of blanking on, like, like, what did they really seize on other than, like, like a lot of really great Worf moments throughout the season? Well, it, yeah, I mean, it seemed like the stuff they were giving him to do was the underworld storyline with Rafi. He was heavily involved when they were breaking into the vault, the Section 31 vault. Uh, and then it's like action stuff and quips. Um, and that's about it. The thing that was kind of a bummer for me with Worf, and Michael Dorn was tremendous on Picard. Like, he really was so much fun to see back. But in a, you know, a traditional Star Trek show, you would have an episode dealing with Worf's shift to pacifism, what it meant, how his character is, like where he is in life and how he feels about it. They would have done something with Klingon mythology. Whereas like, because of this whole like 10 hour movie format, they're just like, oh, he's a pacifist now. Uh, okay. But, but like, why? I, I think he was kind of being facetious I, when he said he's like embraced pacifism. You know what I mean yeah. though? Like kind of like the noble warrior though. Like yeah, yeah, you yeah, would yeah. understand the transition into that in like a, a proper episode dealing with that. Yes. But it's just kind of like a element that's just added to the character in Picard. It just, I think he got a little shortchanged. Like, I just wish there was like, this is what bugs me about, you know, we're, we're talking about like this 10 hour movie format. Do what they should have done. It's just like given like seven episodes to each of the main characters. And then the three remaining episodes, they could have interspersed that. And that could have been like more mythology driven episodes. But you know, e even if like one episode is focused on each one of the main characters, there could have still been the serialized storytelling of moving the plot forward. And they just, you know, it was their loss, not, and our loss as audiences, not getting a full episode, just focused on Worf's journey. Yeah. It would have been cool to do something where um, it's like, you could even do like six episodes. You could have the Troy and Riker one interlinked. Um, but it's like an episode about each of those characters. And then they merge together for a four-part story at the end. Like that could have been really cool. 
I was thinking about this, you know, like I kind of think like there is a fan edit that should be done in which you kind of take the season and you can, I think you can turn it into like a two and a half hour movie. Hmm. You know, you, you take away some of the lame action, just the action sequences that weren't very good. You highlight a lot of the great character moments and then the plot is almost kind of secondary, which we didn't think the plot was very strong or didn't make that much sense or... You know, but I, I think like the, I don't know, like, like episodes one through four, I think could be condensed to maybe 50 minutes, mm. you know, with, with much of episode four being, being like the, the bulk of that. I think maybe kind of the return of data and the return of row in the next couple episodes could have been another maybe 40 minutes. And then we could have maybe just gotten away with the finale plus the um, uh, final 15 minutes of episode nine Vox and you know, you got yourself like a two and a half hour movie there. And I, that I think would have been one of the few times in Star Trek where maybe a movie would have been kind of a, a strong outing for these characters. Yeah, no, that's true because the TNG crew didn't really benefit from movies too much outside of First Contact. And even that one, it's not giving everyone uh equal amount to do in terms of the cast. Like they never... When you were making those original series movies, people were expecting it to be a Kirk, McCoy, and Spock showcase. And characters like Uhura and Sulu and Chekhov will always have something to do, but it's going to be a smaller little role than typical. Uh, or I, It's probably about even with the TV show, but it made more sense to translate. Like It just was easier to translate. Whereas like TNG, I, I don't know. I don't know how you make a seven character show into something a mainstream audience will show up for first contact was probably the best effort at doing so although like i said you know you and i struggle to find like what was the best ensemble episode of tng yeah. if listeners have an idea out there like please send it in and we'd love to tackle that episode but like we had no problem figuring that out for like deep space nine for example we went with like bada bing bada bang you know yeah um so uh i don't know, like yeah i like i can't i'd love to see a you know like a wharf spinoff or maybe a wharf movie it he's such an iconic character i think there's more there to scratch uh yeah there's no mention of alexander at all Mm-mm. um not that alexander's a fan favorite but it just seems as if there's maybe something worth mentioning at that you know like you know like raffi and wharf are both joined at the hip and that like they're both bad parents. They're, they're yeah. admittedly both bad parents, and they never even touched upon that or or connected on that level. No, no. Well, I mean, hopefully, yeah, as you said, Worf gets a movie, and hopefully it's not the Section 31 movie. <laughs> hopefully not. Um, Cam, Mr. Data, um, what a journey. Has he been the character, maybe other than Picard, uh, the the one who's had kind of the most dynamic like journey among all the characters here. Yeah, it's the one that they are underlining in double lines every step of his journey, um, consistently throughout the run of the show. Yes, like he starts off as kind of like the weirdo, but he uh, quickly becomes beloved among fans who, who benefit quite a lot from a very charismatic actor who is Brent Spiner, who kind of like. He knows how to play those kind of like funny throwaway lines that they give to Data mm-hmm. and, you know, makes him very lovable. And 
he, like he essentially becomes a star of the movies, you know, um, you know, after Patrick Stewart, of course, but I, I'd say that, you know, he peaks in first contact with all the Borg Queen stuff, which is just some of the best stuff I've seen in a Star Trek movie. Yep. Um, Insurrection, bit of a step back in which his brain has been damaged and he's kind of, he's playing in haystacks with children. Um, and then he dies quite unceremoniously in Nemesis. Yeah. I was just like, okay. You know, um, I did think, you know, that the death scene in season one of Picard was excellent. Mm-hmm. You know, definitely one of the peaks of that series. Um, I did not mind bringing him back in this form. But, you know, as I said, it kind of thought it was weird that, uh, you know, he he didn't seem to be alive for that long before he decided he's ready to die. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, But I, look, I, I, I was just really wondering, like, what they're going to do with Brent Spiner going into season three. Like... I kind of, I was like, oh, is Lord just going to be the antagonist throughout? Is that how you bring back Brent Spiner? I was kind of delighted by like making Data just a bit of a different character here. Like, like it, it, it feels like Data at the core, but there, there's like, like again, it tracks for me in what you're combining different dele- uh, elements of these Soong androids, and Brent Spiner gets to kind of play with it. And I don't know, I, I like, I really liked where they brought Data in season three of Picard. My, my criticism though is like, I was kind of surprised by how little data we saw. Like I would have thought we'd get a lot more data, although Brent Spiner, and he was literally like a main cast mess member in season two. Uh, yeah. Yeah. With the unforgettable Adam Soong performance. Um, <laughs> unforgettable. Yeah. Unforgettable. That Tesla driving man. It feels like with data, all the stories, you know, um, uh, the offspring measure of a man, like these are hallmark TNG stories and you know you kind of have Picard as the like defender of humanity and you have Data as like the observer of humanity looking in from the outside and when you kind of track his journey towards like just learning more about humanity starting to joke dancing (laughs) all the various things (laughs) he learns over the course of the show they just consistently make his character more and more dynamic and interesting and more fleshed out and so it's like such a natural progression for a character to just keep learning and adding to his programming. Yeah. When you get to the movies, it actually, I think that's where they run into trouble with the emotion chip. Yeah. The emotion chip as an idea is good. The way it is portrayed is bad. (laughs) I would say that they used it to its best effect in first contact though, in which uh, the board queen is using it as a weapon against him. Yes, but when you're seeing him in Generations doing like the tricorder puppet thing and stuff like that, it's like, <laughs> ooh, oh no. Oh, little life forms, my little life forms. That was funny. Yeah, uh, it's very, very campy and silly. And then it's like, you just realize they didn't know where to go. And so no. Insurrection and then, you know, Nemesis is basically a bit of a reset of just kind of like pushing him back to where he was. And then they kill him, which actually makes a lot of sense. If you don't know what to do with a character anymore, that's actually not a bad idea. If Data had been given like a really momentous, unforgettable death, like say, you know, Spock was, and assume Spock had stayed dead in this scenario, we would remember it as one of the great deaths in Star Trek. One of the best, probably the very best. No, no. What are you talking about? No, uh, uh. Rios's death oh. in uh, season two, off screen oh, yeah. in a bar fight. You got me there. You got me there. Best death in Star Trek. I was gonna say Hugh, actually Hugh of Borg, but uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah, uh, getting impaled. Yeah. Right? Or that was the one. That was the one to end them all. <laughs> um, but we should do a best death episodes of Star Trek Picard. <laughs> we need to do a two parter. 
<laughs> Remember watching all those people uh, in that admonition flashback, like take rocks and slam <laughs> them into their faces? That was Picard viewers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how we felt watching that season of Picard. Season two in particular. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was like a forecast of season two. <laughs> but um, no, like, yeah, yeah. Once you get data to Picard... I like the idea of having Dodge and Soji connected to him. It feels like an evolution of what Data represented. And I love the death scene, and I was pissed off that they retconned it, basically, just to bring him into Picard. But I think what they did was pretty strong. And I think you could have actually exploited the Data lore stuff more, the relationship between the two of them. But again, they only had a small handful of episodes to deal with it. I loved what they did. And my only frustration is... It's kind of like you got this new data finally established, and then it's like you get, I don't know, what, two episodes with them? And then what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'd be down for a Star Trek data, like, spinoff movie or something. Mm-hmm. Like, but I, my fear is, like, do they know the right situation to put them in? Like, I think it would have to be, like, a Jordian data road trip movie. I think that's the only way it works. Like, like I just can't imagine anything else working. No, I think that's probably the best option because typically when you get to the movie era, all they do is like find ways to put Picard and Data together. But that never really worked that well for me. I think like Jordy and Data makes way more sense, especially if you're doing it on, you know, the Paramount Plus, which is much more just like driven towards the fandom. And it's not necessarily requiring a massive audience to show up in a theater. Think about how cheap it like honestly put those two in a shuttle. They jump down on a one or two planets. Uh they have to go rescue Barkley. <laughs> like from Armus. It Yes. It it would cost like Paramount like maybe ten million dollars. You'd get a lot of traction there. Like come on folks, we're giving you free ideas here. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. No data, I mean, I think it's a very convoluted and um <laughs> often awkward way of wedging that character back in for Picard season three, but I can't argue too much with the results. Um, okay, very briefly, Cam. Um, Yar, like mm. she was in one season. Um, we see her again in yesterday's Enterprise, which was an exceptional episode, and uh we turned that into the Sela character and nothing really came of Sela, and we were very hopeful that we would see her again in uh in season three of Picard and Instead, we got a hologram of uh, Tasha in Data's memory banks, and that was kind of it. Tasha's one of the great lost opportunities, because there's just so much you could have done with that character. And while I like Sela and Yesterday's Enterprise, uh, that version of Tasha, it's a different character than what we met initially. Uh, I like seeing her in All Good Things, but yeah, I just think that's a character that there was a lot on the table you could have done, and unfortunately, we never got it. So Wesley, of course, we did see him uh, throughout uh, TNG's run. Um, I, I liked even like little cameos that we get like in an episode like Parallels in which we see mm-hmm. Wesley at Worf's console during, uh, you know, kind of an alternate universe. Um, I think, honestly, I think episodes like Final Mission and The First Duty are legit, like fantastic episodes. Yep. Uh, not just for Wesley, but just fantastic Star Trek episodes. And I, I think that character gets the short trip, you know, like it's just kind of too bad. Um we jump into the movie era. He's in the background of a wedding. Um, you know? Yeah. And then, Cam, I, we get to see him at the I season finale, don't two know. of uh, Picard. That was, 
That was awkward. That was, I think, the worst reappearance of a legacy character that we got in the run of Star Trek Picard. That might be one of the all-time worst moments in Star Trek. It was so awkward. I just, like, it, he seemed, it seemed as if he was taking on the Traveler's personality. And just like, how can I make this as creepy as possible? Hello, young woman. Come travel the world with me. And, like, you and I were asking ourselves, like, what makes, like, Corey Soong, like, so special? Uh, like, uh, the ability the ability to dramatically delete programs, I guess. Yeah, and the ability to navigate through Los Angeles without shoes on. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, like, I don't know. That scene feels like improv to me. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know what to make of it. It's it like, Will Wheaton, I don't think he's a bad actor. Uh, this is bad acting in this scene. And I don't know what to make of the writing or like, it was just, it, it was like, it, 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 it makes me cringe watching this scene. Was anyone directing them? <laughs> well, you and I asked uh, a lot about like season two of Picard. Like we, we kind of figured like maybe Brent Spiner was just directing himself and mm. Brent Spiner is not very good in season two of Picard. Yeah. Like I thought, I think like Adam Soong, it was an actively bad performance. Whereas I see him in season three of Picard and he was great as uh, the new data. He was great as lore. He was great as Alton Soong. I, I think he just hammed it up on season two and it did not work at all. No, that extends to Isa Brionis too, who had some actually very strong moments in season one. And then I, I don't know what was going on in season two. It was pretty brutal. Yeah. Like following Corey's journey. Yeah. Um, okay. Cam, what's the best era? Or what's the best generation of the next generation? I mean, I guess I'm just old, so I have to say the originals. <laughs> like, the, the TV show feels like, to me, the best format for that cast and the types of stories they want to tell. I don't think they lend themselves well to just, like, action stories, which is, you know, more or less what you're going to get out of a two-hour movie or, uh, in the case of Picard Season 3, a 10-hour movie. It's just like that show is designed in a certain way to tell a specific type of story that can't be replicated in these other formats and to me that's why we fell in love with the show and that's why those are the stories i'm going to go back to more so than the other stuff so i get what you're saying but i think you're forgetting about the vcr board game oh. generation in the uh, mid 90s you know uh you know featuring one um jonathan frakes and robert o'reilly mm -hmm. playing uh gowron ripoff oh it was uh <laughs> captain Kavik. Captain Kavik, as played by uh, uh, Robert O'Reilly. Yeah. Yes, that was the greatest generation of the next generation. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty good. <laughs> that game is actually legit fun. Yeah, it is. It we is. need to it's get lost. back together with uh, fallen comrade Benjamin Young and play that once more. Yeah, it's it's telling to me, though, even like um, they put out the 4K set of the TNG movies. And like I bought the TOS movies immediately and I have not purchased the TNG ones. It's just like... I looked at the price tag and was just like, oh, I, I can wait on these. Wait until Boxing Day. Yeah. 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 It's going to have to be a sale. I'm not paying $100. Yeah. All right, then, sir. Um, look, I, I, we might like take the gas pedal off of our uh, Star Trek Picard talk for the next little while. But um, yeah, it's fun. We're, we're kind of back you doing our usual kind of irreverent formats, at least for the next little bit until uh, Strange New Worlds returns in. I believe June, mm -hmm. which um, I'm really pumped for that. Yeah, me too. That I, I'm counting the days until 
um, Strange New Worlds. Although that said, I do like our irreverent topics. Um, so Tyler, what are we doing next week? Well, Cam, uh, we are going to be ranking the engineers across this vast landscape that we call a Star Trek. Uh, this is one, it's been in the hopper for a number of years, and I, I think this is kind of the perfect opportunity because um, we're going to be getting a new chief engineer in uh, season two of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And uh, sign me up for whatever, uh, well, what, what's the name of the actress? Uh, Carol Kane. From, Carol Kane from Taxi Fame is going to bring to us here. Yeah, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. And also, when we did those ranking, you know, captains and first officers back in the day, there was like six. <laughs> Whereas like now we got a whole bunch to choose from from the new era. So that's going to be a lot of fun. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, of course, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash subspace pod. And you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V is in visorless Jordy Smith. Uh, you can find me at Reportin. That's R as in recruiting Corey Sung. Uh, E-P-O-R-T-O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. <laughs> That's so stupid. <laughs> I wouldn't have used the word inserted, but yes. Well, okay, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>